G'day everyone. So, so good to be back with you. This, this is starting to feel like my second home. This is, uh, you know, coming back. Hope you had a good week. See you next week. This has all been, it's been great. Um, but Brad wants his job back, so um, I, I'm out. Thanks for letting me be a substitute teacher for the uh, last couple of weeks. I've really had a ball, and uh, you guys are starting to feel like my second family. It's been really fun. So we've been doing this series called Awake My Soul. Last week and this week, we're going to conclude it this week. It's from the Psalms. We're talking about what wakens one's soul, what gives uh, joy and energy and hope and buoyancy, and also what deadens one's soul, what gives it weight or heaviness. Uh, In the book of Proverbs, in uh, Proverbs 12, verse 25, it says, anxiety weighs down the heart. And I'm not sure that if there is anything that weighs people down more than anxiety and worry and stress. We really have an epidemic of worry and anxiety and stress uh, in our culture. Now, if you brought a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 27. We are going to be spending the remainder of our time inside this text. This text speaks very specifically about anxiety and worry and stress and how to manage it. This was written by David as well. And uh, just like Psalm 23 last week. And we're going to see some stuff that he had to say about stress. So if you feel comfortable to do this, I want you to turn with the person next to you. And I want you to say, when you worry about things, what is it most often about? Is it about health? Is it about money? Is it about work? What? What is it? Turn to the person next to you and tell them. Go for it. All right, I didn't say tell them your problems, okay? <laughs> I didn't say that. But we, we, we have problems, don't we? I mean, uh, how many of you are sitting next to someone who looks like they have a problem? Just, just raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. How many of you are sitting next to your problem? <laughs> I get it, I get it. There's a couple over there, they both had their hand, hands raised. I'm not sure... You can pray at the end of the the service. You know, uh, some studies have found that stress is the reason for two-thirds of doctor visits here in America. So we do have this culture um, of of stress and of anxiety, and there's really an epidemic, but it's not just the culture that is pushing that kind of stuff. It's life, isn't it? Life and the things that happen to us in life create the conditions for anxiety and for stress. Uh, When my first daughter, Sydney, was born, uh, the doctors found that she had a hole in her heart. And we were so afraid. She was only five pounds. She was a tiny little baby. And I remember I'd been a dad for about a day and a half. And the doctors were already connecting this tiny little girl to EKG machines. And they were testing her heart and... Um, pediatric cardiologists were sitting down with us and talking to us about what options we had. And on one end, she may die. Another end, she may have open heart surgery. Another end, uh, you know, she, it may just close. It's hard not to be anxious, isn't it? 
in, in difficult situations. It's hard not to worry, for your heart to be uh, weighted down with anxiety. Uh, that turned out to be okay. Her heart ended up um, being healed and, and the, the hole closed over and, and she was fine. But we didn't know she was gonna be fine. And in the middle of it, we didn't know how this was gonna play out. In this text, in Psalm 27, David lays out four different categories of scenarios. And these four different categories, he wouldn't have known how they're gonna turn out He was in the middle of these things. Let's begin in verse two. He he raises something here. When the wicked advance against me to devour me. This is the idea of having opposition. Someone is coming after him to try to bring him down, try to hurt him. Verse three says, though an army besiege me. Besiege means to surround. There is no way out. Everywhere you turn, you are surrounded. Verse three also says, though war break out against me. Isn't it interesting that the text doesn't say, you know, a nation is coming against my nation or a war is coming against my people. It says a war is breaking out against me. An army is besieging me. See the proportions in that? His problems have such a level of magnitude that it feels like he is completely surrounded. And it's not just like a dude that's coming after him. He's surrounded by an army. That's what this problem feels like. He is is besieged. And a war is breaking out against him. This is the language of feeling isolated and feeling lonely and feeling completely overwhelmed. You ever felt like that before? You ever felt like you're dealing with a kind of problem that is so unique to you that there's just no way out? You're besieged by the problem. Surrounded by a financial challenge or a health issue or some sort of relational complexity and there is just no way out. There's not even a scenario that you can imagine that is going to get you out of the situation that you're in. Verse 10, here's another one. Though my father and mother forsake me, So here's the idea of family anxiety. How much worry and stress is connected to the relational dynamics of our families? Marriage conflict or or conflict with dating, tension with siblings, infidelity, divorce, issues with your children, problems with caring for aging parents, maybe it's challenges with your in-laws or your extended family. Every family has issues. Some family have their issues on display for everyone to see. And then other families are better at hiding them than others. But every single family has issues and complexities and those relational dynamics, those complexities, because we love people, create anxiety in us. Some of the deepest anxiety comes from family issues. Verse 12, look at this. False witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. Have you ever had someone that you're in conflict with and they just start spreading outright lies about you? They start spreading mistruths about you. And and, and it's the people that you know and you feel like your reputation is taking a beating and it's simply not true. And there's no way that you can follow them around to try to clean up the mess and go, well, actually, that's not true. And you find yourself with a sense of your stomach in knots, with a feeling of injustice. 
How can someone get away with saying things that are such lies about me and spreading this with people that I love, people that I care about? They are hammering my reputation out there. And there's really nothing I can do about it. This is what David's describing here, spouting malicious accusations, false witnesses. These are the anxiety-producing scenarios that David talked about in his day. Now, in our day, two professors from the University of Washington, Holmes and Ray, have cited that anxiety and stress come from five main areas. Any kind of worry and anxiety could actually come from five categories. Number one is financial problems. Number two is workplace stress. Number three is personal relationships. Number four is health whether it be your own or someone you love. And the fifth one is irritants. That is lack of sleep or pace of life or traffic, road rage. So if you were not feeling anxious when you first walked in, I'm sure you are feeling that now. You're welcome. Uh, Often people who are prone to worry hear a message like this and they simply worry about how much they worry. Now, The antithesis of worry, of course, is peace. Peace. The opposite of anxiety is is experiencing peace. You ever thought about how the church began? In the first century, the church was birthed into a, a perilous scenario. You had the Jews being oppressed by the Roman Empire. Uh, The Jews were under Roman occupation. And all throughout the New Testament, we read that people were martyred, people were killed. Stephen was stoned to death for his faith. Jesus was, of course, crucified. Others were crucified. Others were put to death because of their faith. Can you imagine living in a time and a place where other people in the church were being killed for what they believe? Can you imagine waking up in the morning not knowing if your kids were going to get murdered because of something that you believe? or whether your wife or your husband was gonna die today. Can you imagine the level of anxiety that that would produce? That is the story of the church that we're a part of, the church that began 2,000 years ago. It was birthed into such a turbulent time and place. Maybe that's why the apostle Paul, in all the letters, his 13 epistles, all begin the same same way. Have you ever noticed this? Begin the same way with these two words. Grace and peace, grace and peace. Two pillars of Christianity, grace and peace, the grace of God and the peace of God be upon you. We may die next week, may the peace of God be upon you, may the peace of God meet you at the point of your worry and your anxiety. You know, it's so important that we would meet together as a church and that we meet together regularly, we keep coming together regularly. Because we need to speak the grace and the peace of God over one another. I need that. I live in the same anxiety-ridden, fast-paced, worrisome world that you live in. And I need you speaking the peace of God over me. Grace and peace. John 14, verse 27. This is what Jesus said about the kind of peace that we have access to. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. What a powerfully insightful verse. 
So the peace that is offered to followers of Jesus is not simply an absence of conflict. There is some sort of other world peace that we have access to. Is it possible that we've been living our lives missing out on this other world kind of peace? The kind of peace which surpasses human understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Is it possible that we have not been accessing the peace that Jesus promises us, offers us? Peace from another world. All right, let's go back to Psalm 27. So although David presents these stress-producing scenarios here, he is surprisingly composed and, and surprisingly at peace. Look at this in verse one. He says, who shall I fear? Whom shall I be afraid? Sounds like he's trash-talking here. Verse two, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. My heart will not fear, though war break out against me. Even then I will be confident. What is this guy's secret? Apparently in this text, there is some sort of ancient strategy for managing stress. And I think it is all in verse four. Verse four is where all the secret source lie. Let's check this out. Verse four. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. So David's saying that there is one thing and it's sort of broken down into three verbs, three parts. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to look at verse four in Psalm 27 and I want you to underline three words, the word dwell, the word gaze, and the word seek. This is our anxiety strategy right here. Right here from the text, dwell, gaze, seek. So let's break it down. First of all, dwell. Dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, the house of the Lord was the temple in David's day. So this was obviously not literal because he could not live in the temple. He could not dwell 24-7 in the house of the Lord. So there is something else that is going on here. There is a, there is a metaphor that is going on. This is the idea of dwelling in the presence of God, pursuing the presence of God, trying to live with an awareness of God. So when I lived in Australia, I worked at this radio station and uh, there was a senior uh, VP that I worked with who's just one of the godliest people I'd ever met. Uh, he'd been very successful in business. He was about the age of my parents and uh, he'd, he'd made a lot of money, but everyone would describe him the same way. They'd be like, I don't know, he's just kind of reminds me of Jesus. But he just had this gentle spirit about him, walked with the spirit more than, or as much as anyone I'd ever met. So one day we're hanging out, and he says to me, um, I haven't told anyone this, but uh, my, my daughter, my 17-year-old daughter, she's having a really rebellious season right now, and she has not come home in two days, and we don't know where she is. And I said, you must be worried out of your brain. And he said, I'll never forget this. He said, I don't worry, I worship you see, this guy moved all of this energy, all of this spinning anxiety, and he moved it from worry to worship. He moved this energy over to worshiping the one that can actually do something about this. He took his feelings of powerlessness 
and moved it to the one who was powerful. He moved his worry to worship. He took his energy and he started worshiping Jesus. And I have never forgotten that. This guy tried to bring the presence of God into all parts of his life. Even when he didn't know what was gonna happen with his daughter, he would worship Jesus. Second word is the word gaze in this text. It says to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. David's saying the one thing, this one thing is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. We know what it is to gaze, don't we? We gaze at something, we fixate on it. We give our, we give our attention and our focus to it. The first night that I ever met my wife, I was preaching and uh, she came and she stood in line to talk to me afterwards. And uh, I had talked, among other things, I talked about domestic violence. And uh, she stood in line and then she introduced herself and she said, I'm a, um, I'm a victim rights uh, and um, I work with victims of violent crime in the criminal justice system, particularly children, victims of violent crime and sex abuse. And um, I helped them navigate the court system and, and all of that kind of stuff. And she said, my experience is when preachers like you talk about this stuff, it stirs it all up. And then there is often a lot of people that want to talk about it. And she said, here's my card. Um, if I can help you, I would love to help you. And she was right. It did stir up a bunch of stuff. But she handed me that card and I looked at her and I gazed at her. And she said, you know, how does that sound? Can I help? And I said, would you like to have my children? No, I, I, I didn't say that. I, I, I didn't say that. I, I, I didn't say that. That would not be socially acceptable, apparently. So, um, no, I, I, I said, you know, that would be great. And, then, and so then I went home. And this is a little weird. So if you could just keep this between us, I would appreciate it. But... Um, I had that business card and I put it, I was living on my own at the time and I, and I put it on the, uh, the table in my kitchen. And every time I walked through my kitchen, I would gaze at that card and it would gaze back at me. And I would just kind of imagine what it would be like if we, if we went on a date, if I called her and said, hey, you know, I need a green card. You know, um, no, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, and I just, I just sort of imagined what life would be like with her. And uh, we ended up going on a couple of dates, and um, I ended up taking her to Australia. I really had this sense that, you know, God had called us to be together, and I really fell in love with her. She's an amazing person. And uh, so we went to Australia, and I decided I was going to propose on a beach in Australia. Oh, yes, ladies, that's what I did, okay? <laughs> so, uh, so I took that card... And uh, from, from the moment that we first met, and I had it mounted and framed, yeah, and, uh, and then I had it all wrapped, and, um, and then, you know, at the moment I got down on my knee, you know, I like handed her this, this picture frame, you know? Now, she was expecting something to put on a finger, you know, so it seemed like a better idea to me than it actually did to her, but uh, she looked at it, she said, that's really sweet, you know? In America, we give rings when people get engaged, okay? But I actually had one of those as well, and it was, it, I mean, it was really beautiful. But we know what it's like to gaze at something, don't we? I mean, you, you ever gazed at, a, at a, a, a promotion at your particular workplace, 
or gazed at a, at a neighborhood that you could live in or a house or, or gazed at a certain person or maybe your family has not turned out like you thought it would or you hoped it would and you're looking at another family and you're just gazing at them and you're just kind of going, we always wanted to have kids and we weren't able to and you gaze at another family. Someone else seems to be living their, their dream or living your dream and you just gaze at it. Or you imagine having a beach house and you, 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 you gaze at that. What's interesting about this text is that this psalm is telling us that there is something that is interconnected between what we gaze on and what we worry about. Like, like there's an interplay. The things that we gaze on and the things that we are anxious about are connected. When we make any of these things our one thing, we worry. We're afraid that we will not get them. We will not get the thing that we're gazing upon. And the reason that this produces anxiety in us is because none of these things are dependable. If we make any of these things our one thing, we are anxious. It produces anxiety in us. You see, the one thing, David is saying, the one thing that is trustworthy for you to fix your gaze on is the beauty of the Lord. That is what this text says. And David says, if your gaze is on his beauty, you will not be anxious. If your gaze is on his beauty, you will not fear. If your gaze is on the beauty of the Lord, you will not worry. Have you ever watched people 10 pin bowling? I mean, it's, it's, it's a funny sport. It's particularly funny to watch on TV. I think the most difficult job in the world is commentating 10 pin bowling, you know? What do you think he's gonna do now, Bob? Well, Mike, I think he's gonna roll the ball and try and knock some pins down. What do you think, you know? But if you watch 10 pin bowling, when, when, when someone like gets back and then they, they bowl, and you ever watch what they do after they let go of the ball? They're like, or they hop on one leg, trying to tilt the axis of the earth to try to, the ball to go straight, you know? It's quite absurd, isn't it? Because like, once you let go of the ball, you know that you have absolutely no control over the direction or what happens with that ball. I mean, once you release it, you have to simply let it go. Now this text is saying really clearly, fix your gaze on the Lord. And then you need to take hold of these worries and you just need to let them go. Worry does not give you control. So gaze on the one who is in control. All right, third thing. Third part of, of, of David's anxiety management strategy is the word seek, to seek him in his temple. Now, to seek in this, in this text literally means to get advice, to get counsel. David is saying, the one thing I'm doing is I'm gonna be seeking God for his counsel, for his direction, for his provision. A couple of weeks ago, we had our first ever information meeting for our church. If you weren't here last week, uh, me and another family and a couple more people are starting a church in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, we, we have gone from being in a very sort of stable, big church environment to starting something all from scratch. 
And uh, people have gone onto our website and they've like asked a little bit about it. And so instead of just meeting with everyone individually, we said, why don't we get everyone who's made an inquiry about our church, get them into one place, and then we'll just share the vision of the church. So it was our first ever info meeting. It was about 13 or 14 days ago. So um, on, on Friday morning, the day of our, our particular event, we, we were looking at sort of the, the number of people that were looking at coming. We were expecting 20 people. In fact, there was a friend of mine, and I asked if I could borrow his house. He said, I'm not going to be in town. We said, no problems. We'll just use it without you. And he said, that's fine. He said, I've got places to seat for 18 people. I said, great. That should be fine. So we said, we're expecting probably 20 or so. It should be fine. Friday morning, we discovered that 70 people have RSVP'd and said that they're coming. Like, this is a good problem, but it is certainly a problem, my friends. So I'm looking at that another family moved with our family to do this, and one of my closest friends in the world is a guy named Jake, another pastor. He and I are getting together that morning to plan, and, uh, and we realize that we have 70 people coming to the first time that we're ever having a meeting. We've planned for 20. We have seating for 18. This is going to be incompetence on display for all to see. Like their first encounter with our church is a couple of knuckleheads who can't even organize a small group meeting, right? Where am I gonna sit? Sit on that guy's knee, that should be fine, you know? I mean, this is, it was just a mess. We're like, we need to get some more chairs, we need to get some more tables. And he's like, where are we gonna get those from? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, you know, can you go to a grocery store and get a pallet of chairs? I, I don't know, do you need to order them ahead of time? We're like, we should have thought about this before a couple of hours before the meeting, right? This was just not a good thing. So we got together and we prayed and we just said, God, we are praying for this thing tonight. We're praying for all the logistics. We're praying for the people that come. May you just go before us. We're just seeking you for this. So we finished praying. Jake says to me, all right, you work on what you're gonna say. I'll go and try to find some tables and chairs. I'm like, where are you gonna go? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, okay. He said, I'm gonna go and have lunch with my wife just really quick and then I'm gonna go find him. I said, fine. So he goes and to have lunch with his wife, he pulls into his driveway at his house and right next to his driveway is a truck. It's a U-Haul. He gets out of his car and he looks in the back. It happens to have the roller door up, right? And it's filled with tables and chairs. He's like, well, this is interesting. So... So he walks up to the front door of the house, knocks on the door, and some guy goes, yes. He's like, I'm your neighbor. And he goes, are these your tables and chairs? This guy's looking at him like, yes, weird stalker neighbor guy. <laughs> they, they are. And he goes, well, you know, have, do you ever rent them out? And he's like, no, I don't rent them out. He said, would you rent them out? He's like, well, what do you want them for? Jake says, well, you know, we, we, we've got a gathering of people tonight. There's more people coming than we thought. And he's like, what kind of gathering? He's like, it's a, it's a church. He's like, a church, huh? He's like, yeah. He said, well, I'll tell you what, you can take them. He goes, no, you know what? Let me drive them over. I'll drive them over and I'll help you set them up. He's like, uh, okay. So this guy steps out, jumps in the front of the U-Haul and they drive over to the house and for the next two hours, they're setting up tables and chairs and tablecloths and the whole thing and then they have this conversation. And this tables and chairs guy starts talking about the fact that he's currently separated from his wife and that his life is feeling like it's in a downward spiral. He has his two young girls um, in, in custody of them, and things are just not going very well. So Jake says, do you want to come to our meeting tonight? He said, uh, okay. 
So a couple of hours later, the room's filled with people, and he walks in with his two daughters. One of his daughters sees one of my kids and goes, hey, know each other from school. They high-five and run off and play together. And then he walks in and sits in the middle of 70 other people on his tables and chairs, and he listens to me talk about our church. And I'm like casting vision about the kind of church that we want to be and what we want to do and our heart for the city and all of this stuff. And then I said, you know, it sort of culminates. And I said, all right, there's three groups of people. There is going to be those we're calling the congregation. And you would say, over the next 10 weeks, I've got no time to help, but see you when you start on Easter Sunday. I'm like, great. The middle group would say, or, you know, like I can help a couple of times. I can give financially. I can help you, you know, sort of raise money and get ready for this. And I'll come and I'll meet you and pray a couple of times. There's that group. That's the support team. And then there's the launch team. And I said, all right, the launch team are going to be the people that are like giving disproportionate amount of their time and their energy to plant this church. It's going to take time, sacrifice, resource, money, you know, like everything. In fact, the 40 days leading up to Easter Sunday, we are going to be in prayer every day. We're going to be in the Word of God every day. You know, some of us are going to fast, you know, that entire time so that we would be calling upon the resources of heaven for the beginning of this church. We do not want it to simply be a collection of, you know, clever people with good resources and a, and a good network. We want it to have the unexplainable presence of God upon this story of this church and that God would do something that only he could do. So I, I, I'm sort of talking about that. And, and before I'm even done, the tables and chairs bloke in the middle of the room puts his hand up. And I'm like, yes, I don't know your name. He says, I'm on the launch team. I'm like, all right, let the history books of our church record that the first person to ever join our launch team is the guy that we met a couple of hours ago who brought tables and chairs to our first ever gathering. That is what God does. That is what he does. You know? And God willing, when I'm back with you guys again in the future, I'll be able to share more about what God is doing in him and the story's not done, you know? I'm praying that God reconciles his marriage and and, and brings things, things back together. Think about the two different sides of the miracle. On our side, we go on, mate, we need, we need tables and chairs. How are we gonna do this? And then like, oh, there, you know. He's like, my life has fallen apart. My marriage is dissipating before my eyes. And God sends a pastor to my door <laughs> to invite me into something. This is what God does when we seek him. This was a more than you could ask or imagine kind of moment for us. And it's becoming the, the bedrock, the history, the narrative of our little church beginning, of God doing something that we could never have manipulated or orchestrated ourselves. This is what God does when we seek him. And when we seek him, we are reminded again that he is in control. God is in control. And we can say what David said in verse one, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 27 ends with two inciting thoughts. I wanna share and we'll be done. Verse 13 says this, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I was with a couple of friends recently. We were at a, at a hospital in the waiting room and we had a loved one who was in the ICU and I was spending time in Psalm 27 
at that at that point, and I was I was really wrestling with like, this is hard. You know, this is hard, not being anxious and not worrying when there's someone that we really love and we don't know how this is going to turn out. And I was reminded the couple that I was with three years earlier, I was in another waiting room with them at another hospital, and that was because their 19-year-old beautiful girl had been in a car wreck and she died. And, and, and I just remember talking to these two and it's like a flashback that I had to that moment. And the mother looked at me and she said, my daughter died and I am sad every single day. But God is still good, she said. God is still good. You see, we have got to be careful that we do not unintentionally subscribe to a shallow theology or an incomplete theology. Even though things don't always work out like we want them to, we can be confident of this. We will still see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. When we face health challenges, we will still see the goodness of the Lord. When we face financial difficulties, we will still see the goodness of the Lord. When family members hurt us or betray us, we will still see the goodness of the Lord. And when we face unexpected disappointment, we can be confident of this. We will still see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You see, worry is rooted in a lack of trust of God. That's really what it gets down to. A year and a half ago, Brandy and I were really praying about leaving a financially secure job at a big church. Um, I could have I stayed there forever. It was a wonderful place. So many friends and loved ones that were there. We're wrestling with this idea. We feel like God is calling us to leave and go and start something from scratch. We went on this retreat and it was out of state and it was with a bunch of people that we didn't know. And one afternoon we found ourselves in a small group with a few other couples and we were talking about transitions. We're talking about like the, the taking a leap, taking a step of faith. You know, while everyone else is saying, you're lucky to have a job, why would you leave a job, a good paying job in, 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 in this, this kind of economy? You'd be crazy to do that. And then someone looked at me and said, well, what are you afraid of? Because I didn't really know these people and they didn't know me and they didn't know anyone I knew. I just said, I'm afraid that I won't be able to provide for my family. My three little girls are looking to their dad to provide for them. My wife is looking to me to provide. And I'm afraid that I'm not gonna be able to do that. And he looked back at me in what I can only describe as one of the clearest voices of God moment that I've ever had. And he said this, do you think that you are the one that are providing for them now? took my breath away. It kind of reminded me of, you know, when Moses was in the wilderness and, and, and God is calling him to go be his spokesperson. And Moses is like, but, but, but I, I, I can't speak. I stutter. I'm, I'm not good with words. And what does God say? Who made your mouth? Who made your mouth? Do you think it's you that provides for your family now? 
There's some perspective for you. I realized, you know what exposed? It, it exposed me that I wasn't, I didn't trust God. I just didn't trust God. It was a powerful, serendipitous moment of clarity for me. But the difficult thing is that we have to wait for God's timing. And verse 14 says that. It says it twice, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Took my kids to the circus a couple of weeks ago and they were particularly enamored with the trapeze. You know, the trapeze have, have two different team members. They have the flyer and they have the catcher. The flyer is uh, the one who gets all the credit, somersaults and backflips and all of that. But the catcher, the catcher is the real star. The catcher is the one that has to grab hold of the flyer. I saw a picture of this this week. Gives you a bit of a picture of that. (laughs) That's not an image you were planning on seeing in church this week, was it? Good luck getting that out of your head. Isn't that kind of how we feel? You know, like, what if no one catches us? What if the catcher is like distracted or having an off day? What if the, the catcher has got sweaty palms or can't hold me? You see, the beautiful dynamic between the catcher and the flyer, Henry Nowen wrote about this, is that the most imperative thing for trapeze artists is that the flyer cannot grab the catcher. The flyer cannot be like, where, where are you? The flyer simply puts himself out there and waits. Just waits. And then the strong, dependable, reliable, faithful hands of the catcher. It is the catcher's responsibility to grab the flyer. It is not the flyer's responsibility to grab the catcher. Isn't that what faith is like? We put ourselves out there and we wait. God, don't, don't let me down, God. I'm just gonna put myself out there. I'm, I'm waiting for you. I don't know how. I don't know when. But don't be anxious. Set your gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Dwell in his house. Seek his will. Don't be anxious. He will catch you. We can trust God. I want to close with this. I want to tell you about a a very successful lawyer in Chicago in the late 1800s. His name was Horatio Spafford. And uh, he was a very successful, very prominent lawyer. He bought a bunch of real estate in downtown Chicago. And things were going really, really well. He had five children, four daughters and a son. In 1870, his four-year-old son, his youngest child, contracted a disease and unexpectedly died. It's awful. The very next year, the great Chicago fire came through and it wiped out the vast majority of his entire net worth. He lost so much. Two years later, he decided to take his wife and his four daughters on a trip to England. They were gonna go on a vacation, they were about to jump on a ship, and then he had a business obligation at the last minute. So he said to his family, you guys go on ahead of me, 
and I'll be there in a couple of days. So his wife and his four daughters jumped on this ship and went across the Atlantic. And unexpectedly, this ship collided with another water vessel and it sank and 226 people died. All four of his daughters drowned. His wife was rescued and made it across to England and she sent a telegram with two words, saved alone. Horatio Spafford jumped on a ship to go and, and be reunited with his wife and as he was going across the Atlantic Ocean with unspeakable grief, right where his precious little girls had drowned, he penned these words. When peace, like a river, attend my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. As a man who put his gaze on the beauty of the Lord, dwelled in the presence, would seek after God. And in the middle of terrible gut-wrenching grief, He's turning his attention to worship God. He's moving his worry to worship and he's saying, God, with your strength, it is well in my soul. Give me the peace that is from a complete other world. So we're gonna stand together. Let's stand. And we're gonna sing this song. And whatever anxiety you have carried into the house today, what, whatever grief, whatever stress that you are carrying, whatever is unresolved and is spinning around inside of you, I wanna encourage you to move your worry to worship. Move from your sense of powerlessness to the one who is powerful. Wait for God. Put yourself out there. It is with His strength and His strength alone, honestly that we can access the peace that comes from another world, surpasses all human understanding. And we can declare by faith, it is well in my soul. It is well with my soul. Katie, will you lead us? God, we recognize that there is the only way, the only way that we can move our worry to worship, that we can say it is well is by your strength. It is by dwelling in your presence. It is by fixing our gaze on your beauty. It is by seeking you. So we put ourselves out there, God, and we wait and we trust you for you are our strength. And we can be confident of this, that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We give you our anxieties, God. And we receive the kind of peace that is from another world. And we thank you for that, God. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen, amen. Yeah. On the way in, you received a little handout like this. If this is a time where you feel like God is really stirring something in you, you would not consider yourself a Christian, but you would like to 
Put your trust in the one that can take your anxieties and replace it with peace. That I would encourage you to fill this out and then check the bottom there where it just says, today I prayed to receive Jesus Christ in my life for the first time. You can hand that uh, into someone on the way out. Uh, If you would like to get connected, there's an area called Starting Point that is in the lobby. And if you want to run the marathon, and I highly encourage you to do that, then uh, go to the um, Team World Vision meeting that is on and may there be a great force that comes from this place running and serving people. Hey, thank you, thank you, thank you for allowing me to be with you the last couple of weeks. It has been a joy. Thank you. Bye-bye.